Acts 2 verse 14 says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day or 9 a.m. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And Father, we just humbly pause and ask now, help us to continue in our worship as we offer to you our heart and soul and mind and spirit, just longing to hear what you would speak to us through the word of God. We ask that every purpose and reason behind why your spirit inspired this portion of your word, that it would find its place in a personal way to speak into our lives today. That, Lord, you'd help us to just glean as we look at this lengthier section, Lord, in some ways that we would still hear the things that you'd want to apply to our hearts in a personal and a direct way. So we ask now that your Holy Spirit be our teacher and the one who would speak to us to understand and hear the voice of God this morning. And we pray this expectantly together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. You know, what a difference it makes when the Holy Spirit really gets a hold of someone's life. You know, this passage in front of us is a fitting example of that because here we have Peter, who, if you remember, literally just a little more than a month ago, the Bible tells us he denied the Lord Jesus repeatedly, fearfully before a young girl. Now we find this same man, Peter, after an experience with the Spirit of God and the Spirit really getting a hold of his life, now we find this same man boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ, not denying him, boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ in front of a huge multitude of people, many of whom who it was really of greater risk for him to speak about Christ than it would have been perhaps in front of that girl where he once denied the Lord. And all because of the work of the Spirit of God in this man's life. It makes such a difference when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a person's life and begins to just have greater influence upon us. Here we get in Acts chapter 2 in our text now this morning, the first sermon, if you would, you could say, of the, of the New Testament church. 
And I think you find here even a pattern of spirit-filled preaching and teaching. And in light of that, let me just make quickly some big picture observations. And particularly, let me say, if you have a heart to be a Bible teacher, to be someone who speaks and communicates the word of God in whatever capacity that may be, again, the Holy Spirit lays this beautiful paradigm, gives to us this message of Peter here. And because of that, I would say, if you really want to know what spirit-filled preaching or teaching or genuine Bible teaching should look like, uh, you may not necessarily find that in great books written by Christian authors or Bible schools. Perhaps the Bible might be the best school on the subject. Uh, and here, Peter, we see a spirit-filled preaching taking place through his life. And a few things we take notice of in regards to that is, first of all, we note that his preaching was based in Scripture. It wasn't based in Peter's idea. Peter takes three passages from the Word of God, and those passages become the foundation he bases his message in scripture and it's then spoken and then it's explained to those who are listening another thing we notice sort of the 10,000 view perspective of this preaching and teaching of Peter is it answered people's spiritual questions Peter didn't speak from the word of God and then afterwards people actually had more questions than they did before he spoke when he spoke and conveyed the word of God, people walked away with their questions answered, their spiritual and moral questions in regards to understanding more about God and the ways of God. People walked away saying, you know what, I understand a little bit more now. It's a little bit more clear what God's plans and God's purposes are to answered spiritual questions. Thirdly, we take note in this spirit-filled preaching that the, the, the emphasis was about Jesus. It glorified the Lord. It wasn't Peter trying to get up and have a slick presentation so people walked away and said, that guy's a good presenter. Wow, he's, man, we, we, we need to get more people to see how great he presents. It was a message that pointed people to Jesus. People walked away and talked about Jesus and they saw that Jesus was glorified. Their attention was upon the Lord. Those listening really heard about Jesus. They learned more about Jesus. And the final thing we take note as we'll come to the end of the sermon is that this spirit-filled preaching, it brought spiritual conviction to those who were listening. It's going to say they were cut to the heart and they said, what do we do? How do we respond to God? And there was this sense of conviction that came upon them that they were actually hearing from God and they then wanted to respond to God. They wanted to respond to what they sensed God was saying to them. Remember the backdrop as we look at this sermon together this morning. On the day of Pentecost, Jerusalem being packed with pilgrims there to worship during that feast day. It says people from all nations assembled together there and the disciples gathered together as well waiting to receive the promise that Jesus spoke to them about, about receiving power from on high, being baptized with the Holy Spirit. We saw that on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out on that small group of disciples. And we saw last time that a few miracles or signs accompanied this outpouring of the Spirit on that day of Pentecost. It says that a loud sound of a rushing mighty wind from heaven was heard. And I think God used that to get the attention of all the people who were gathered around, they heard this miraculous sound. It was the sound of a wind. It wasn't a literal wind. It was a sound. And it got the attention of people. 
And when they did hear that, it tells us as well in Acts 2 verse 4 that on that occasion they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and it says they began to speak with other tongues, literally glossa, other languages, known languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they were miraculously enabled to speak in languages they had never learned or studied or known before as the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. God let this miracle of speech, you might say, happen in their midst and as this took place, God allowed there to be observance hearing this because as we read then through verses 6 through 13 where we left off, it says when the people came, they were confused, everyone hearing them speak in his own language. And they couldn't understand how are these people speaking in our language? They're, they're speaking you know, fluent Egyptian and, and Persian and, 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 and Italian. And how is this happening? These are Galilean Jews. They don't know these languages. This is, this is truly something miraculous that was taking place. And it said there in verse 11 that what they heard was them proclaiming in their own languages the wonderful works of God. They were praising God and speaking to God how wonderful he was, giving glory and praise to him. And it says when that happened, verse 12 and 13, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying, whatever could this mean? Verse 13, and others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. In other words, they must be drunk or something. This is so abnormal. They're under the influence of something to be able to do this. Well, Peter's now going to address the questions, their curiosity, and he's going to clarify for them some of these criticisms that were just made there in verse 13. Verse 14, he picks up by saying, Peter, then standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. He says, pay attention, please listen. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, Peter's saying, look, it's 9 a.m. in the morning. They're not drunk with wine already. That's a false perception. He's, he's saying here, listen, your perception of what's happening is incorrect. You're making a perception of what you just saw. You realize that something supernatural happened, but he said your perception is wrong. So he's saying, please pay attention. Take serious what I'm saying because I'm going to explain to you what's going on. Verse 16, he says, but this that you're experiencing is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now take notice what Peter is saying. He's stating that what was happening when the Holy Spirit was poured out, he's saying what was happening had a biblical basis to it. He's saying this, which you just experienced, this move and work of the spirit of god he's saying this is what joel the prophet spoke about in joel chapter 2 and he's going to quote here from chapter 2 of, of joel's prophecy and he's saying look i'm able to interpret what's going on as a legitimate spiritual experience because there's a biblical basis for it i can look to the scripture and say look there's a scriptural basis for this spiritual experience that's happening right now and I like this. I think this is very beautiful. The Bible spoke of those things. They were being fulfilled by the experience that was happening. And let me say, it is always good, like Peter, I believe, and it's always important to be able to have a biblical basis for spiritual experiences. Listen, I want to be open to experiences with God. 
I want to be open to spiritual experience, legitimate spiritual experiences. I said last time, I'm not a cessationist. We believe in the, the, the continuous uh, belief of, of their, the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit and his gifts and having encounters and experiences with God. But yet we also need to have a biblical basis for the ministry and the working and the operations of the Holy Spirit. And we should be able to say when something happens, this is what the scripture speaks about. Or if something happens that the scripture doesn't speak about, that we may say, you know what, there, I don't see a biblical basis for that, so I don't necessarily know if I'm comfortable with perceiving that that is genuinely from the Holy Spirit. Maybe it was from your human spirit, but it doesn't necessarily mean it was from the Holy Spirit. And so Peter is able to look and say, hey, there's a biblical basis, scriptural proof for this spiritual experience. And he's going to supply that now as he quotes, as we go on, he says, this is what's spoken by Joel the prophet. Verse 17, it shall come to pass, he quotes from Joel 2 now, that in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit, pour out, excuse me, of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and all my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And I'll show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. They shall be turned into darkness, the sun, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Looking all the way down now to the last days to the tribulation, the return of Christ out to the day of the Lord, verse 21, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter saw how what was taking place was this fulfillment of Joel chapter 2, that prophecy. And what Peter is conveying here is, look, this is what God predicted in Joel 2. God had declared that in the last days or the latter days, there would be this great outpouring of the Spirit of God, a widespread outpouring of the Spirit. And he says, this is the fulfillment of that last day's outpouring of the Spirit. What Peter saw is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy of this outpouring of the Spirit that it started at the birth of the church. And that it actually then would, it seems, continue this continuous outpouring of the spirit it would begin at the birth of the church and he says yet it would continue through the age of the church and he ultimately says down in verse 20 it will carry through all the way to the great and awesome day of the lord that is all the way out and through the tribulation into the time of the return of christ and his second coming and peter i believe looking at this said you know what what we are experiencing is the beginning of the fulfillment of what joel prophesied about that God would begin to pour out of his spirit upon his people throughout the age of the church and all the way through to the return of Christ, God said it will come to pass that I will pour out, notice he says, of my spirit. He said, this is how I will pour out my spirit. I will pour out of my spirit. The spirit, as we said, was already given to them in salvation. They were regenerated, but now we see God pouring out of his spirit upon, notice, all flesh as he quotes from Joel 2. All flesh. In other words, the outpouring of the Spirit would be widespread, universal, available to all, both men and women, both Jew and Gentile, now in the age of the church. 
Again, when we talk about Jew and Gentile, the Jews being the Jews, anyone non-Jewish or Israeli would be Gentile. All other nations. That it would be this universal outpouring upon rich and poor and young and old. And keep in mind, up to this point, as Peter's saying this, this is crucial because up to this point, all they knew of from the Old Testament reference point is God would on occasion allow his spirit to come upon select individuals for maybe a momentary time to conduct a ministry or carry out some purpose. But now Peter is saying, listen, now God without restriction is universally pouring out of a spirit upon all his servants. You don't have to just be a Moses or a David or a Daniel or a Jeremiah He's saying all servants, men servants, maid servants, young and old, men and women, anyone who's a servant of the Lord can now experience this glorious outpouring of the Spirit of God upon their life. And notice the results and evidences of when the Spirit of God is poured out upon a servant of the Lord. Some of them are referenced here by Peter, quoting Joel 2. One thing we see is that when the Spirit's poured out, the people would be speaking things that God wanted spoken. Do you see what he says there? He says, your sons and your daughters, verse 17, shall prophesy. He then again says down in verse 18, when God pours out a spirit, they shall prophesy. Again, to prophesy is to simply speak forth God's word. It's to speak forth for God, to speak what God wants spoken. And he's saying, look, men and women alike, young and old and like, will be empowered by the Holy Spirit to begin to speak forth a word from God. People will be able to give a word from the Lord. As they speak into people's lives, anyone who's a servant of the Lord can be used to speak for the Lord. That God wouldn't just exclusively just, well, I can only use a, a prophet or I can only use a, a preacher or a pastor or an evangelist. No, all servants of the Lord would experience an enablement at times in their life to be that prophetic voice to speak forth a timely word from God. Again, not only those old men, women, but even younger believers, he says, your sons and your daughters, the younger generation, those who are even newer Christians at times receiving a word from the Lord. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 regarding prophecy, he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort. That's what prophecy is. A simple, short word of encouragement, a word to edify someone, a word to comfort someone, a timely word from the Lord to perhaps exhort someone. So people would be speaking forth the word from the Lord when the spirit was poured out. Also, he says another evidence, he says, is people will be seeing things. God will be revealing things to people, showing things to people. He says that when the spirit is poured out, God said in that time, he says, your young men shall see visions. That is, God would begin revealing things to the younger generation, giving divine insight to the younger generation among servants of the Lord, having vision and seeing things. And he says, and your old men, he says, will dream dreams. Again, God would be revealing things to the older generation also. Rather than the older generation of Christians thinking, look, we served our time. Let all the young people with energy do stuff now. God says, no, when I pour out my spirit, the older generation won't be falling asleep or fading out. He says, God's spirit will be giving them divine insight and they'll be having dreams, dreams for the Lord and having dreams birthed in their hearts, seeing things that God wants them to see, showing them the realities of the things that he's wanting to do. And how wonderful that one of the works of God's spirit is to begin to show us things. 
to reveal things to us that we might know what God's doing or what God wants to do. And he says this outpouring, as we talked about verse 19 and, or, or verse 19 and 20 there, is something it seems to indicate because you notice the references there to wonders happening in heaven, signs in the earth beneath blood and fire. Those are things that are references to events that are going to happen in the latter days in connection to the tribulation and the day of the Lord and the return of Christ. And he's saying this work of the Spirit being poured out upon the servants of the Lord, it's going to carry through continuously until that time when Jesus returns. But really the most important aspect of why Peter is really quoting this passage as well beyond trying to give explanation for what happened is verse 21. He says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be Saved. In other words, one of the most important aspects of this last day's outpouring of the Spirit is so that the door of salvation would be flung wide open to any soul on the planet. He says, because then it will come to pass once the Spirit has been poured out, he says that whoever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That any person, no matter what their background, no matter what they've done, who they are, what they carry around is the guilt. He says, whoever, whoever, anyone can call on the name of the Lord and they can be saved from their sin. They can be spared from the guilt and the judgment, and the things that they know are not right within and they can be spared by Jesus at this universal salvation will become available. And it is that theme of the Lord Jesus offering his salvation to anyone who calls upon his name that's what Peter now wants to expound upon he wants to stay with this theme of Jesus and what Jesus has done as the spirit directs him to continue in the carrying on of his communication verse 22 he says men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God by miracles wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So notice, Peter declares here in those few statements, really, who Jesus is, what he accomplished in his life and ministry, in his death and his resurrection, in verse 22, he speaks of Jesus' humanity and his deity, that he was both God and man. Do you notice he says there in verse 22, Jesus of Nazareth, a man. That Jesus was fully a man, literally human. God took upon himself a second nature. He came and lived among us as a man. Yet, though Jesus was a Jewish man, he says God the Father proved through his life and ministry by attesting to the reality of his divine nature he says by manifesting miracles and wonders and signs that God was doing through him in other words he's saying God the father was trying to make evident and prove according to passages like Isaiah 35 and others that said that when the Messiah came his ministry would be marked by miraculous power by doing signs and miracles. And he says those signs and miracles that were happening as the father was working together in partnership with his son were intended to validate and prove the deity of Jesus. 
that he wasn't just a man, that he was God living as a man with the power of God working in his life. Remember Jesus himself, when he spoke about himself in John's gospel, said, look, if you don't believe my words, at least believe the signs. They evidence that I'm one with the Father. And so it speaks of Jesus' deity and his humanity, yet despite that proof of who Jesus was, Peter describes in verse 23 how they broke the law of God and were guilty of actually killing Jesus. He says, you've taken him by lawless hands and have crucified and put him to death. Notice what Peter does. He puts the blame squarely upon humanity for basically putting to death the Savior and Messiah that God had sent to them. The very people Jesus came to, it says, he came to his own, but his own received him not. And the very people he came to save actually refused him and punished and tortured and killed Jesus. And their sinful actions were a violation of God's law. And Peter says, that's your fault. You're to blame for that. You carry the guilt of that. He says, you murdered your Messiah. You put to death the Savior that God sent. And Peter squarely, without hesitation, puts the responsibility and the guilt upon them for putting to death the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Now, let me just say, Peter speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, apparently the Holy Spirit does not find it damaging to someone's psyche to feel guilt, to feel blame for what they've done wrong, to feel a sense of human guilt that I did something wrong. You know, we work so hard today whether it's helping others or protecting others or you know, doing what we can to pacify or ignore our own conscience to make ourselves never feel guilty about anything. Listen, until you feel guilty, you don't want to be saved. Human guilt is something God wired for us to be able to feel. I'm not talking about condemnation. I'm talking about guilt. I've done something wrong. What I've done is horrible. I'm terrified because I have offended a holy God that created me. And Peter here just puts the blame upon them. But yet, despite that guilt and responsibility of human wrongdoing, notice in the midst of even that, God's purpose was being fulfilled, Peter says. Because verse 23 says, him being delivered to you to crucify was by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. In other words, Peter says, God foreknew this was going to happen. And even as you were responsible for your guilt, he says God was orchestrating his plan even through your guilty and wrong actions because God had always determined, purposed that he would allow what men would do to his son to be the very way whereby his son as the savior would suffer and die in their place so that the sin of the world could be paid for and atoned. Talk about the wisdom of God. <laughs> that God orchestrated and allowed all that and he sovereignly was overseeing it. Again, Isaiah 53 speaks of that, how that Jesus, it says, bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and now by his stripes we are healed. So again, this wasn't an accident. This was all by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, knowing all these things, controlling all these things. Peter says, you are guilty, but God was in complete control and God was providing salvation 
even through those very things that were done through Jesus. Yet despite that death and suffering of Christ, three days later, Peter says, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So God the Father being fully satisfied with Jesus' payment for sin in his substitutionary death for us upon the cross, he was so satisfied, he validated that he was justly satisfied as the judge of all humanity by raising Christ back from the dead and not allowing the power of death to have any control over the humanity of Jesus' life. It says he loosed the power and the pains of death from Jesus' life. He would not allow, it was not possible that death could hold Jesus because Jesus fulfilled exactly what humanity needed to be fulfilled. And so therefore God exercised the power of the divine nature to raise his son Jesus back from the dead according to the eternal plan of God. And it's that resurrection of Jesus that he overcame death that Peter now, having proclaimed that, says, listen, let me give biblical basis for this. And again, he turns back to the scripture to basically support the resurrection of Christ by quoting Psalm 16, how it was something predicted to happen by God. Verse 25, he says, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He's at my right hand that I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, take note of this, the key, my flesh will also rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Hades nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption or decay. You've made known to me the ways of life and you will make me full of joy in your presence. So Peter now quotes from Psalm 16 where David speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, particularly verses 26 and 27, we want to take note of David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, said, My flesh will rest in hope. In other words, my physical body, my flesh, David was saying prophetically, is going to be laid to rest in death or in the grave in a condition of hope. That is, that it wasn't the end once I was laid to rest physically, but rather, he says, something was going to happen beyond death. Verse 27, he says, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, that is the place of the unseen realm among the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. In other words, the physical body of the Holy One would not be permitted to corrupt to decay because God the Father would not permit that he would raise back up the body of the one who died out from among the realm of the dead that there would be a resurrection before the body corrupted now having referenced that passage Peter says let me now explain what that text meant let me explain to you what that prophecy meant when David said those very things he says verse 29 men and brethren let me speak freely to you about the patriarch David, who is quoted Psalm 16, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, in that passage, David prophesied firsthand that his body would rest in hope and that his flesh wouldn't see corruption. And Peter says, think about this. He says, let me remind you, brethren. He says, King David, who declared that, he's dead. <laughs> And he's been dead for centuries at this point. He's saying David's body is buried in a tomb and it's never been raised back to life. 
His body corrupted. It decayed. He never rose back out from among the dead. So Peter is trying to say, apparently when David spoke that, it was under the inspiration of the Spirit with assurance that he was speaking of someone other than himself because his body is decaying. It's dead. He's buried in a tomb. He never raised from the dead. So David must have been, therefore, speaking of someone else, one of his descendants, who would experience this resurrection through his family line. Verse 30, therefore, he says, being a prophet and knowing, here it is, that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ, the term for Messiah, to sit on his throne. So David, having received the promise of God, 2 Samuel 7, that the Messiah, the Christ, would come through his family lineage, David understood that God would raise up from the fruit of his own body one of his descendants to be the Messiah or Christ. And again, you read 2 Samuel 7, and there God said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I'll set up your seed after you and one will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. That is an eternal reign. And so David understanding this, that God had given him an oath and promise that of the fruit of his body, the Messiah would come, the Savior he says, verse 31, he, foreseeing this by the Spirit, spoke in Psalm 16 concerning the resurrection, not of himself, he says, but the resurrection of the Christ, of the Messiah, that his soul, Peter says, his soul would not be left in Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. So David, foreseeing by the Spirit, knew, I'm not speaking about myself. I'm speaking about the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, who God's going to send through my family. He will be the one who will not experience corruption after he dies, and God will raise him back out from among the dead. Peter was prophetically predicting that the Christ, the Messiah and Savior of Israel, would be evidenced, would be revealed in that after he died, he would come back to life from the dead. And that's how they would know. That's how they would know. That's the Christ. That's the Savior. That's why he says, verse 32, this Jesus, that Jesus of Nazareth, this Jesus, he says, God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. And they were all eyewitnesses. They had seen Jesus back to life from the dead. Verse 33, therefore, Peter says, being exalted to the right hand of God and having now received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, that outpouring of the Spirit they were experiencing, which you now see and hear. So Peter points how the Scripture gave understanding, again, to what was happening there when the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. He said, this is exactly what the Scripture predicted. The questions you have are being answered by what the Word of God said was going to take place and what Jesus said he was going to do, which was when he returned to the Father, he would send the promise of the Father, the Spirit. He's saying that's what's happening now. God's Word's reliable. And what Jesus said is something that is valid, and he is clearly the Savior, the Son of God, the Messiah sent for us because he says he has ascended back into heaven after raised from the dead, 
And he says Jesus is the one now who is poured out of the Holy Spirit in this way that we're now experiencing. Again, take notice that Peter says that of the Holy Spirit, Jesus poured out the Spirit. I think that's good to take note of there because you know what? The Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It means he hasn't changed. And it's always been the heart of Jesus to pour out of the Holy Spirit upon his servants and upon his followers. And as God's people, as those who are servants of Christ, we have to remember, listen, if we desire an outpouring of the Spirit upon our lives as the Lord's servants, we need to ask Jesus, Jesus, you're my Savior, you're the Lord, you're the one in authority, would you pour out of your Spirit upon my life in fresh ways? If we desire an outpouring of the Spirit upon the church, we need to seek Jesus as the Lord sitting at the right hand of the throne of God to pour out of His Spirit upon our lives that we might experience what He wants for us under the influence of the Spirit of God. Verse 34, he says, For David did not ascend. Again, Peter's just verifying this. Though. He says, okay, it wasn't David. He didn't ascend up into the heavens. But he says of himself, verse 34 going on the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool so what Peter does there now is he quotes from Psalm 110 the most quoted portion of the Old Testament we find throughout the New Testament Psalm 110 and he quotes from Psalm 110 to again validate and prove that it was not himself but Jesus the Messiah the Christ and Savior who is now sitting at the right hand of the throne of God and that this was what the word of God was proclaiming would happen. You notice there in verse 34, as Peter's quoting from Psalm 110, if you look at the language, he says, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, all capitals, that's the Hebrew tetragrammaton from the Old Testament, Yahweh or Jehovah, Yahweh God, the name of the true God that Israel knew, he's saying Yahweh God said to my Lord, capital L, but small O-R-D, it would be Adonai, which means ruler or master. Peter's saying there that what David was proclaiming is that Yahweh God said, he said, to my Lord, to the one who would one day be my Lord, to the one that would one day be my ruler, you sit at my right hand. He wasn't saying that to David. David says, no, Yahweh God was saying to my future ruler, to my future Lord, sit at the right hand of the throne of God, evidencing the fact that Jesus, being one with the Father, had deity with the Father, and it wasn't David who ascended, but it was Jesus who assumed that role and is there now at the right hand of God till God makes all of his enemies under his footstool. Verse 36 Peter then concludes, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, he says, no question, that God has made this Jesus. He, again, he says, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So Peter kind of drives the nail home there at the end of the sermon just one more time. And he says, look, may there be no confusion. It is this Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth from the, the, the line of David. From the tribe of Judah, this Jesus, historically, prophetically, this is the Lord and the Christ that God has sent to us. And he says, and yet we've rejected him. We've crucified him. Peter again reminds them very clearly, you crucified the Savior that God sent to you. 
who is both Lord, he says, and Christ. Again, can I draw your attention? Take notice to the two relationships a person is to have with Jesus Christ. He is both the Christ, as I said, the Messiah, which means speaks of the fact that he's the Savior. And we are to know Jesus as the Christ, the Savior, the one whom God sent. That we need to be saved from our sin. We need Jesus to be our Savior from our sin, our Savior from hell and damnation and judgment that we deserve for our sin. We need to know Jesus as the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah. And we also need to know Jesus as the Lord. He's not just the Savior. He's also the Lord, which means ruler, master. You know, I would say this morning, how do you respond and relate to Jesus? Do you just know him as Savior and Christ? Or do you know him as Savior and Lord, where he's the master and the ruler over your life? Look, if you're here this morning and you have never entered into a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, that's what God wants. God wants you to know Jesus as Savior. God wants you to believe that you're a sinner and that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And Jesus loves you and he died for your sins upon the cross. And he rose again so that today he's alive and right where you're at, he can reach into your life and with the power of his shed blood on the cross, he can wash away all the guilt, all the stains, all the sins in your life and give you the righteousness of God that he alone possesses so that you can be right with God and enter into heaven after you die and give you the gift of eternal life. And Jesus wants to save you, but you have to respond to him and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. But he also wants to be the Lord of your life. He wants control. And you need to be willing to turn from controlling your own life and let him take control. And let him truly be the Lord in your life and follow him and live for him. Well, when Peter made this statement after speaking these things, and here they hear this reality. I mean, imagine if, let's say, imagine somebody has the cure for cancer. And the person has the cure for cancer and you have cancer. And that person who has the cure for cancer knows you have cancer and they're coming to tell you, to announce to you, I've got the cure for your terminal cancer. And you're so angry and embittered and agitated because you have cancer that when they come to you, before they get a chance to lovingly tell you the good news, you strangle them. And then afterwards, somebody comes and says, do you realize... You just killed the person that had the miraculous cure for your life. Now imagine these people hearing that that day. You crucified, you murdered the Savior. You just killed the Savior that God said. Imagine the, the weight of that, the gravity of hearing that. That's why verse 37, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Notice here, powerful conviction came upon them from the Spirit of God by the Word of God. I think verse 37 is one of the greatest places in the Bible where conviction is illustrated. It says they were cut to the heart. The Greek literally means they were pierced through, they were agitated and painfully stung within. It was like somebody putting a sword right into their heart as Peter expounded the word of God, the spirit of God just pierced and penetrated their soul in this stinging experience of, oh, and their heart was just, it was like open heart surgery. They were just laid open and strongly stirred and notice the outward evidence of inward spiritual conviction of being cut to the heart. What did they say? What shall we do? 
What shall we do? How do you know when you're coming under the conviction of the Spirit, when someone comes under the conviction of the Spirit? They want to know what do I do to respond to God? What do I got to do? I want to be right with God. Whether it's the unsaved person wanting to be right with God and therefore wanting to ask Jesus to save them or whether it's the Christian coming under conviction from the Spirit, genuine conviction says, what do I got to do? I need to respond. And look, let me say something. Boy, I look at that section and I think that should be our attitude towards hearing the Word of God. God, help us. God, help me. God, help us that our hearts would be tender that when we hear the Word of God, we would be cut to the heart. And we would say every time we hear the Word of God, not, well, that was interesting. That was, yeah. I know some more Bible knowledge now. Knowledge puffs up. But instead, we'd hear the word of God and say, God, what do you want me to do? How do I respond to that? What do you want from me? To me, what a beautiful thing. May God bring more of that reality into all of our lives where we say, what must I do? And Peter answers them saying, this is his evangelistic thrust. He says, repent, which means turn away, change. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And notice verse 40, with many other words. So we don't have all of what he preached. We just have some of it. With many other words, he then testified and exhorted to them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So Peter begins to testify evangelistically what they needed to do respond to what they just heard about Jesus Christ in their own spiritual condition. And he now begins to speak and give these exhortations. And apparently not everything, as I said, is recorded here in these verses because verse 40 says, with many other words, he also testified and exhorted them. The crux of his message, he was saying, be saved, (laughs) be saved. Again, so we don't have all that Peter said here, but we have some important things that he was saying in regards to what it means to be saved. He says, you need to be delivered from something. Be saved from this perverse generation. In other words, Peter was saying what we all need to know is that we do need to be saved. We need to be saved because we all sin and our sin makes us guilty before God. And we need to be saved from the judgment of sin, which is eternal damnation in hell which is what we deserve when we sin against a righteous holy God that we actually need to be delivered we need someone to save us and to spare us and what we need to do is we need to call upon the name of Jesus because whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and the only one that can save us is Jesus but that means Peter says there as well that we need to again verse 38 repent that we need to turn away from how we've been living wrong or thinking wrong. Well, I don't need to be saved. I don't, these Christians are a little too fanatical. I don't need to be saved. I go to church and I even listen when the preacher talks. No. You need to repent. It means you need to have a change of mind, which is if you don't think you need to be saved, you need to repent of that. You need to have a change of mind, which is a change of direction that makes you realize I am wrong. I need to be saved at some point. I need to be delivered. I need to be saved. I need Jesus to forgive me and save me that there would be a turning to receive the remission, the the forgiving, the removal of sins and receive the gift of eternal life, the gift of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then once we do that, Peter says, 
to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Again, Peter wasn't teaching baptism brought salvation. That's unbiblical. We know that. Other texts tell us that. But Peter's putting baptism in very close connection with salvation. Why? Because salvation is internal. It's not outwardly evident what happens in the heart. And so Peter says, that's why you need to obey the Lord in baptism. Because you need to demonstrate, I'm saved. I chose to respond to Jesus Christ. And it was an outward way of that demonstrating that. In fact, look at verse 41 as he closes. It says, then those who gladly received the word were baptized. So there's the pattern right there. You receive the word of the gospel, you respond, and then you are baptized to demonstrate that outwardly in an act of obedience. And that day, the Bible says, about 3,000 souls were added to them. Interesting, when the law was given in Exodus 32, it says about 3,000 people died. On the day that the grace of God and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit happened at the birth and launching of the church, it says about 3,000 souls were saved. That's called a God of love and mercy who says, I know you can't keep my righteous law, but I love you so much, I'm going to make a way through the work of my son Jesus Christ in grace to reverse everything that's wrong in your life. And how beautifully here, now 3,000 souls are added this incredible response that first day that Peter speaks about the gospel of Jesus Christ to the crowd. And I love the statement. It says 3,000, I have this word circled, souls were added. 3,000 souls were added. Hey, can I impress upon your heart this morning? That is how the Bible, and that is how God views people. They're souls. They're eternal beings. They're souls. God help us to have more of a passion to realize people are souls that are going to end up eternally in hell or eternally in heaven. Yes, our lives get all fractured and messed up, but people are souls. Yes, they frustrate all oh, their but they're souls. God help us by His Spirit to give us that heart. Let's stand.